Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, what's going on? Uh, you know, things are good. Um, I, I, uh, you introduced me as your co-host. Uh, I, I feel like slightly nostalgic uh, when you just said that. That's right. So you finally decided to dump me because I refused to drink beer and you've brought on a, a scab. Isn't that right? <laughs> Something like that. I couldn't. I couldn't fire you, so uh, you fired me. I think. Uh, yeah. Right. We fired each other. Yes. Yes. Uh, but no. I guess uh, we can. Michael, just start with uh, with some. I think big news uh, for us and and maybe our listeners. I will be, you know, stepping down from my role as uh, co-host. I mean, not immediate. It's going to be kind of a slow transition. I'm being laid off uh, slowly. Um, and uh, we were going to be bringing on a, a new voice, uh, Alexa Tullett, who I think our listeners should be familiar with because she was one of our guests, uh, I think, in like our first year, I think. Is that right, Alexa? Uh, I, I was a guest of yours at some point. Yes, that's true. Um, but I think your guests will probably recognize me because I was your forerunner um, on the Black Goat podcast. So like some might say I was your inspiration for this podcast. I think Mickey has said that very thing, haven't you? <laughs> Absolutely. I, it's, not, it's not even like, you know, a pretend. It's like you, you definitely were the inspiration for me, for sure. Um, I think for UL as well. I think with UL, you also had the very bad Wizards inspiration, um, but but Black Goat for sure. Yes. I. Uh, so I think we've talked about this in the past on past episodes. We were both inspired by like the Black Goat in general and, and uh, the work that you are doing um, Alexa and I have been friends since, I want to say since grad school. Um, Definitely for me. Yep. Yep. And I think I was in grad school still too then when we met. And, uh, you also have a previous relationship with Mickey, right? Yeah. I think I've seen Mickey around, I guess. <laughs> he looks sort of familiar. You know, that guy, like his, he's got a lot of pictures on billboards or whatever. You just get this <laughs> feeling that you know him. <laughs> Well, yes, of course, Alexa uh, was my former student. Um, so, and, and and a Canadian. So I feel like I'm like just like switching up a little bit. So we're still going to keep the Canadian content going. But now it's going to be a Canadian, in the, a Canadian in the US and an American in Canada. So I think there'll be some kind of like cosmic balance there. <laughs> uh, something like that. So, so well, Alexa, before we get into it, because I really want to. Like, oh wait, beers. Shit, I'm sorry. This is yes. I always forget. Exactly. Let's, this is the reason I'm fucking leaving. Dude. This, this is the whole reason you're quitting. Um, uh, that's a joke. He's not quitting. It's a gradual transition. Let's talk about beers. Yeah. Uh, so okay. So I uh, am breaking free from uh, Collective Arts. Um, not from their store, mind you, because I picked up this beer from uh, Collective Arts, which is right around the corner from my house. Uh, but they have this kind of Friends of Collective Arts thing they do, which I love. And this is from a brewer I had never heard of before. They're called Half Hours on Earth. Uh, or Half Hour. I'm not sure it's singular or plural. It must be singular. Uh, and it's uh, called Weather is Not Climate. And they bill themselves as Canada's first or perhaps only carbon neutral uh, brewery. So uh, anyway, I like the title, Weather's Not Climate, and this is a grapefruit, mango, cranberry, vanilla, sour IPA. <laughs> wow. Yes, yeah, so it's literally all the, all the good stuff uh, or bad stuff into an IPA. Wow. Okay, Alexa, what about you? Um, so my, my first beer is uh, from Trim Tab Brewing, which is a brewery in Birmingham. Um, it might be my second favorite brewery of all time. Um, I really like it. And this is just their IPA. 
Um, so like kind of their, their, their standard, um, their standard IPA. Nice. What is your favorite brewer of all time? Uh, Druid City Brewing Company, which I should have for this inaugural or for me inaugural episode. Um, I should have made sure to get, um, beer from Druid City Brewing, but, uh, but I didn't. So I have to save it for another episode. It's all good. There's lots of time, lots of beer. You eventually will run out of beer to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and you well, this is like, you know, miraculous, but you, I was promised you actually have beer today. Yeah, for once I'm actually drinking beer. Um, this is uh, a beer from a brewery called Loop, which is uh, like a local Quebec thing. Um, it's a Saison with lemon and ginger. It clocks in at a a pretty mild 3.5% ABV. I have to like sort of ease back into it. You know, I have to get, get back in the saddle slowly. It's always you something will. with you, man. It's yeah, like either yeah. the champagne of beers, not beer, or like essentially like light beer. The next one, the next one will be a little bit heavier. I thought that we got a very thoughtful email from a listener that I actually haven't brought up till now, which was anonymous. Um, but they said that they had kind of a history of bad experiences with alcohol and they really liked our show and they didn't want us to stop drinking because that was the show, but that you should not bully me about my drinking. And I thought that was an excellent point. Uh, I also uh, recall that email, and uh, I'm bad. I'm a bad person. Uh, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I appreciate the listener. It actually was a very nice, thoughtful email, and I appreciated it. And also because it kind of made Mickey look bad. And so, incidentally, I also appreciate that. Excellent. Uh, well, I want to open up. Uh, yeah, let's drink. let's crack them. So I, I think Alexa too was. Um, uh, you also were unsure whether the opening of the beer is is, is a bona fide opening of a beer. Yeah, it was. Um, it just sounds so perfect. I actually felt sort of nervous just now that I might mess it up. <laughs> Dude, Mickey on multiple occasions has opened beers like into his computer. So <laughs> yes. And as a follow up to that, because I think last time we talked about this was when we had uh, Gordon Pennycook on. Um, my beer is fucked up. I mean, my my computer is fucked up now. It's actually the screen no longer works. I'm using my wife's laptop right now to record this. Um, and I blame the podcast. So, right, this is a beer-related damage. I I took it to a shop, and they said there is uh, water damage. And I'm like, aha, uh, it could be beer. It could also, I think I've, I've spilled wine on it, too. So uh, I'm just generally clumsy. <laughs> whatever you spilled on it was definitely alcoholic. But <laughs> which kind of alcohol, you know, tough to say. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so I think we have a, an interesting show today. We'll be... Uh, the the main event will be talking about uh, a new book that just came out by Chris Bale. It's called Breaking the Social Media Prism. But before you know, diving into that, uh, maybe I think we uh, we owe a bit of an explanation uh, for this surprise move uh, of bringing in a new co-host and and me kind of stepping away. So we'll, Alexa, we'll I'll give we'll give you a chance uh, in a couple of seconds, but I'll kind of give my perspective. Um, so for me, it's it's I. Th- I think by the time this airs, uh, well, I guess it depends when it airs, uh, it'll be about three years, uh, more or less. I think we started uh, in May of 2018, so three years. And man, I'm just, I don't know, I'm kind of tired of doing it. And uh, I feel I have said pretty much all I want to say. Uh, and I've run out of things to say. Uh, Yoel has, a, you know, is like has infinite wisdom. So you know, we've just scratched the like the iceberg of what Yoel, Yoel can contribute. But I'm like pretty one dimensional. 
So I, I've said what I had to say. And, and so that, and also I'm a fucking lazy person. Um, and uh, even though the podcast is not tons of work, it is work, it's effort. And I am an effort minimizer and I just wanted to eliminate uh, one more thing. You know, but, but again, I want to reiterate, I'm not like leaving completely. I'm kind of going to slow down, maybe just do once a month or so for a little bit and then uh, totally pass it off to Alexa. Um, but the real question, I mean, me leaving, I think, makes total sense. I think uh, we can consider this self-cancellation. But the real question is why, Alexa, you, why would you do this? I mean, this is, this is, there must have been voices, numerous voices, perhaps even your, your former, you know, uh, podcast friends were trying to dissuade you from this. So, 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 so why are you doing this? Well, the first person who tried to dissuade me from doing this was actually you, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this, this, uh, this came onto my radar when I was talking to Yoel maybe about a month ago now or a little bit more. Um, and Yoel told me that, you know, he was, he was getting these signals from you, um, that maybe you were trying to like slowly inch out the door from doing the podcast. Um, and, and then Yoel was like, Hey, what do you, um, you know, what's your, what's your podcast calendar like these days? Um, and I was really excited about that because, uh, mainly because I enjoy talking to you all. Um, and secondarily because, um, the black goat has been on a hiatus for a while and, and I'm, I miss podcasting. Um, so this was kind of like a, I had earlier this semester, I had been, you know, I had thoughts about, um, but perhaps like starting a new kind of podcast or doing some, some kind of project on my own. Um, and yeah, so Yoel's question came at a time when this was something that, uh, I was sort of missing and looking for. So, um, so that was, that was really exciting to me. Um, and then I had this hesitation, um, partially, uh, from the conversation that I had with you, Mickey, but also my own thoughts. So, um, from listening to the podcast, um, I sort of, I've had these moments listening to your podcast where I'm like, I really want to like disagree with them. Like, I really don't have the same position as they do, um, on this issue, often like political issues. Um, and while that doesn't seem like uh, a problem in itself and perhaps might, might be a good thing, um, which actually kind of maybe is, related to what we're going to talk about today when we talk about um, political polarization. Um, but I had this, uh, I wondered whether you guys had sort of like a vision, a political vision for the podcast, um, and whether it would be, you know, aligned with, with my sort of own political perspective. So, um, so, you know, sometimes you guys do shows where it seems like you at least the, the positions that you take seem to sort of push back against something like a radical left or the, the academic left or something like that. And, and then, you know, I, if, if that was sort of the goal of the show, um, I felt like it wouldn't necessarily be aligned with my goals because I think that I often am the radical left or, or agree with the radical left. And, and in, in some sort of, particularly for some issues, find that, um, those values are very important to me. Um, but then, yeah, so we talked about this. Um, and I talked to a friend of mine actually who asked me, um, do you think that it would be like a problem if, do you, do you feel like you would be unable to disagree with like Yoel or Mickey or express your views? And I was like, absolutely not. Like I would never be worried about 
hard feelings. I think that they're, these are people who I feel like I can speak very freely with. And when we spoke about the goals of the podcast, that was kind of like, uh, the, the message that I got from you and Yoel was not so much that you have a political stance that you want the podcast to represent or that you, you know, are interested in expressing a particular kind of view. Um, but that you're just sort of, uh, that open dialogue is really important to you and that, you know, the sort of perspective of the podcast is something that you see as dynamic and something that could change, um, you know, with time, with the hosts, something like that. Um, so then, yeah, that, that sort of like, um, sealed the deal for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, as long as you're willing to sign on to our, extreme anti-Semitism, which I would say is really the guiding, you know, political <laughs> impulse of the show, then I think we're we're all good. Um, no, I, I think completely seriously, it's funny, you know, having had this conversation um, with you about, you know, what are we trying to do? Um, what is this show about? And going back and thinking about some of our early episodes, which were like very intentionally about this, like kind of culture war political stuff, right? Um, so like the intellectual dark web, um, campus free speech crisis, that sort of stuff. And that seemed like interesting and important at the time. And like, I don't dislike those episodes, but it's also not so much what I'm interested anymore in pursuing. Like, I feel like this kind of culture war stuff, I mean, relevant to what we're going to be talking about today, like mainly these days, I find it just tiring and I want to do, I don't know, talk to interesting people or talk about interesting ideas. And that doesn't necessarily have to have a political slant to it. And if it does, you know, I, I think one of the weaknesses of um, me and Mickey is we maybe agree with each other too much. Um, and that, that is quite boring, right? If one person's like, I think thing A, and the other person's like, you're so right about that. It's like, <laughs> well. <laughs> I think our most like heated disagreements are about beer, which uh, maybe. That's right. May, that's maybe, right. maybe that's a problem. Um, but I, I think I think I agree with everything uh, uh, you said, Alexa, in terms of openness to talking about whatever. Uh, we certainly are not. Uh, yeah, would never be any hard feelings about you expressing an opinion. Um, and I think you know that you know well, knowing you well and myself really well. Um, and it's kind of interesting as well what you said, Yoel. I, I think. Yeah, three years is a long time. And I, I look back at some of those episodes, and I actually kind of, like the IDW episode, like, oh, oh God, I've like, totally changed my mind about that group. And it's like, it's kind of um, cringy a little bit now. But, you know, I think we, we grow and change, and the podcast is changing as well. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and I too, oh, man, the, the culture war stuff, I just want to get away from it, which actually is so relevant to the book we're going to talk about. Um about, you know, this kind of mushy middle, uh, you know, the majority of people being kind of in the middle. Um, but before we, we start talking about the book, I, uh, I I wonder, Alexa, if I can ask you a few more questions. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so some of our listeners might be curious about, you know, what happened to the black goat. So is it going to come back on? Like, are, are we are we now enemies? Are, are, like, do we have now a rivalry with the black goat? Like, we already like, have a rivalry with Very Bad Wizards, and I don't think we have room for another uh, deadly enemy. Agreed. Um, yeah, so so we we sort of um, tapered off doing the black goat. Um, so as you guys or as you guys know, and and maybe some listeners know, um, Samin moved to Australia. Um, so our our schedule got um, got trickier, and um, a lot a lot of different hap things happened at the same time um, that sort of uh, yeah me meant that we ended up putting the the podcast. 
um, on hiatus. And I think that it's, um, it's not the case that, uh, we're planning to never do episodes again. Um, but I'm not sure when that will be. So I'm sort of hopeful, uh, that, that we will do more episodes in the future. Um, and I don't see that as in, in conflict with doing this in any way. Um, but I don't know when that will be. So I got, I got impatient basically. <laughs> so, so Alexa, you're saying your podcast polyamorous. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, man, I mean, how can you not be jealous? How can you not like? How could the you know your former podcasters not like hate us now? I mean, I you know, I, I don't know how. How do you do this, Yoel? Mickey, I'm I'm going to explain to you the emotion of compersion, but uh, it I'm not going to do that on air. We'll we'll <laughs> chat later. Um, it's just like you know, feel happy for her for the fact that she's enjoying herself. You know, that's that's what you should strive for in life. I feel. Yes, excellent. Um, I'm I'm a strict monogamous, so uh, you know. <laughs> you're, you're actually insanely jealous. <laughs> We're right. fucking coming for you, Sanjay. <laughs> no, seriously, we've been trying to get Sanjay on forever. So maybe you can help us with that. You can sort of reconstitute two thirds of the black goat as two psychologists for beers. I can do. I can do my best. That's for sure. <laughs> We, and one other, you just mentioned our, our name. Um, we are not changing our name, right? I mean, it's still going to be two psychologists, four beers, even though sometimes it'll be the three of us. I think that's fine. I kind of feel like what's cool is maybe it transcends any particular set of hosts, right? You know, like the Bond movies, there's James Bond doesn't depend on who's, you know, like maybe it's Daniel Craig, maybe it's uh, Sean Connery. It's still, it's still James Bond. And I feel like this is the same way. Well, Alexa, welcome. I think, you know, uh, it'll be so cool to see uh, what you and you all do together. And I'm going to be in a weird position where, like, after I'm gone and, you know, you guys will be recording a bunch of episodes about me, even, even like, starting, I think, next episode. Um, like, w- you know, I'm for sure going to listen, but, like, I, you know, I, I'm going to listen with strange emotions, I think. I think be mostly happy. But um, I, 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 not to compare myself to any of these people, um, but I remember when uh, Larry David left Seinfeld, you know, a very successful uh, sitcom from the 90s. Um, he left. He was one of the creators. And he said that he never, he never watched Seinfeld again after he left because he didn't want it to be more successful after he left. <laughs> <laughs> so he's not, he, he, he couldn't, you know, experience conversion whatsoever. And I'm not sure. We'll see how I feel. Um, but it'll be a strange experience. I look forward to, I actually do look forward to, to, to seeing what you guys do. It'll be fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to like, uh, Alexa and I have, I think a, a great rapport. Um, not, not that you and I don't Mickey, but it's just, you know, it's, it's equally good, but different, I would say. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes and we already have ideas for things that we want to talk about. So, uh, we hope to be back on a twice a month schedule um, starting in the next month or two. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the things that uh, Alexa is going to add is her youthful vigor and lack of <laughs> total laziness <laughs> such that we could record a little more frequently. Well, I'm sure our listeners will, will like that because I know that uh, some people have been complaining that we've, we've gone on this such a long, uh, not hiatus, but like the, 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 the monthly schedule. It's, well, it's, I mean, it's nice that they want more. That's, I mean, they could be like, well, could you take it back to once every two months or something? It's <laughs> <laughs> really, once a year is all I need. I remember there was like, when we were doing the Black Goat, there was a, a period of time where we were very consistent. And then there was like one, um, 
one date that we were going to miss our regular posting. And we were like, so worried that, that like people were going to call us out and like, no one said anything. And we were like, <laughs> aren't you guys waiting for this? Like, isn't this like what you do on Wednesday mornings? You imagine people like on their phones hitting refresh in their <laughs> podcast client. Where is it? I'm, I did that. I definitely went on, on, on like on your website being like, I, have I missed an episode? Where, where are the fucking episodes? So I was one of, one of your listeners who did that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't vocal about it, but I, but I did in fact do that. I'm sad that I might be losing you as a listener now, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to twist his arm to listen. I'm going to give him shit if he doesn't listen. I think I'm going to listen just to hear the shit you're going to talk about me, Yoel. Yeah, it's going to, we have like five episodes of like, what's wrong with Mickey? <laughs> and that's going to be like our summer's worth of material. It's so. just going to be therapy sessions. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, can you believe this asshole? Ah, God. We'll talk uh, about so like all the times he pressured us into taking tequila shots. and. Oh my God. That's, just, that's not even a joke. It's <laughs> totally not even true. a joke. <laughs> Yes, because yeah. Anyways, yes. My, the, the 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 lab parties. Uh, that tradition of tequilas and the lab parties didn't never stopped. Um, so, all right. I think we should maybe move on um, and talk about uh, this this book. Uh, so again, this this book is called um, "Breaking the Social Media Prism: How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing," written by the computational sociologist uh, Chris Bale, who's at uh, Duke University. And uh, I'm trying to give me a bit of a plug to to the book, but also uh, to the to the fine folks at Princeton University Press who sent us the book for free, um, and that was great, and we always appreciate that. Um, and 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 Chris Bale is the one who kind of uh, helped make that happen. So thank you so much, Chris, and uh, we hope uh, we we do your book justice. So I'll just give a really really brief kind of summary uh, about the book, and then we'll just kind of dive in and, and and see what we all think, and then maybe it's some point after the. First, a little bit, we'll take a break and then continue. Um, so as the, as the book is titled, uh, it's all about social media and how social media, at least there's a popular narrative that, that social media is amplifying political polarization, creating it, uh, making it worse. Um, and the book starts out with a really, really interesting premise and an experiment that goes wrong, um, but goes wrong in such an interesting way. Uh, that, he, that that Chris Bell wrote a whole book on it. Um, and the premise of the book uh, is a common one that I think a lot of us have. And that is that the reason there is pol- that polarization exists is that we all are in our own echo chambers. We all, you know, uh, so as, you know, liberals, we only, you know, talk to other liberals. We only talk to other progressives. Maybe we'll talk to someone who's like slightly like center left, but we'll never actually talk to anybody who's like a Republican or someone who's conservative um, or on the right at all. Um, And, you know, you know, you see this a lot in popular discourse. For example, uh, I think a a few months ago now, there was a movie called... uh, there's this popular movie on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And the premise there is that everyone gets their own, you know, customized news feed. They see their own brand of news. And that's different from other people. Uh, and, and, and why people are wringing their hands about this is that they believe that being in this echo chamber, only being exposed to like-minded people, leads people to dehumanize the other side, to... Um, to, to, to not come to any compromise. And it leads, leads essentially to a divided nation. So, you know, the, the common wisdom is that echo chambers are, are at fault. And what we need is something to break the echo chamber. 
right? And what we can do there is expose people to different points of view. So if you're a Republican, you you, you maybe get exposed to uh, Democratic points of view. If you're a Democrat, you get exposed to Republican points of view. So Chris Bale decided to conduct an experiment, a really, really super cool experiment. I believe it was published in the the results of the study. I think it was in uh, PNAS, that Proceedings of the yeah, National Academy of Sciences. That's right. It was in PNAS. Right. Um, and what they did is such a brilliant study, is they got um, uh, people who were self-identified Republicans and self-identified Democrats, and they paid them to follow a bot that was created by Chris Bale and his team in the Polarization Lab. And this bot would retweet uh, voices from the other side. So uh, a Democrat would, who signed up to this would, you know, would get paid to, 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 to listen to a bot that would retweet stuff from Republicans and vice versa for Republicans seeing stuff from Democrats. And the expectation here was that um, by being exposed to other people's arguments, the, the argument from the other side, that people would moderate their own stances. They would maybe approach the middle. That's the idea. And I think all of us had this kind of intuition. And again, the social dilemma, their point is, you know, social media is bad because it's doing this echo chamber stuff and we need to get out of our echo chamber. Um, the results of the study were surprising and so interesting. What they found was that being exposed to bots that retweeted stuff from the other side did not lead to a to depolarization. It did not lead to people becoming uh, going closer to the middle. It exacerbated polarization. It actually made people more polarized. Now, I should... I should um, uh, kind of put an asterisk there and say that this was especially the case for Republicans. Okay, so Republicans who were exposed to Democratic tweets, um, they became uh, uh, you know further to the right. They, they became more Republican, more, more entrenched in their attitudes. Democrats also also show this effect, but it wasn't nearly as strong. And in fact, it wasn't statistically significant. But they had more power. They they probably would have found that as well. So that's what they found. They're like, no, echo chambers are not the problem. And being exposed to other people's points of view is not the problem. And in fact, it can exacerbate things quite a bit. So, and then the rest of the book is kind of unpacking what happened here. Um, and, you know, part of the book are like these really, really interesting uh, interviews, focus groups with, you know, uh, people uh, who took part of these studies, you know, so-called extremists on either side to find out what they're actually like. And it turns out the way people are like are really, really different. So an extremist, you know, uh, there's one, uh, 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 you know, extremist that, that, that he profiled, Chris Bell profiled, who like literally his, his, his timeline was full of shit. I mean, like literally images of feces, Hillary Clinton in shit, or, you know, Joe Biden in shit. It was like crazy. But when you actually met the guy, uh, or when Chris Bell met the guy, he was polite, well-mannered. Um, he wouldn't say anything wrong about anybody, you know, uh, uh, even even his perceived enemies. So it just kind of revealed that, the, you know, uh, you know what you're seeing on, on, online is really, really different. Um, and then at the very end, he goes into, like, what should we do about this? What should we do about this polarization? If, if being exposed to the other side is not helping, um, what can we do? Um, should we delete, you know, our social media accounts? Or can we act differently on the social media accounts? Um, he argues we shouldn't delete our accounts. I'm still not convinced that's a, that's a correct answer. Um, uh, and he suggested we can uh, maybe check ourselves a little bit, find out, you know, how polarized we are, how extreme we might be, and how extreme our interlocutors might be, uh, and then maybe that will moderate our own opinions. Um, and that's basically it. It's a kind of really, really rough summary of the book. But uh, I'll, I'll, kind of, I'll end there, and maybe I'll kind of pass it off to you guys and, and maybe uh, see what you guys think. Yeah, so reading this... Um a part of the case that he makes is that there's sort of an evolution of 
who is attracted to a platform. So on a platform, and he argues that um, Twitter in particular is like this, where people are rewarded for taking more extreme positions. You end up attracting the extremists and you end up turning off the people who are kind of more moderate in their views. So like either they don't get on the platform at all um, or um, they just avoid kind of charged topics. So like on Facebook, for example, uh, you might only post about uh, pictures of your kids and just avoid political discussion and leave the political discussion to the extremists who are yelling at or about each other. And I couldn't help but think of that you, Alexa, aren't really on Twitter, right? Uh-huh. And, and you know, I, I think of you as, like, not necessarily, like, a moderate in terms of, like, your views, but as kind of constitutionally not somebody who likes to yell at people or about people. And I, I thought that, well, this is a great example of, like, the yellers are the people who are more attracted to Twitter because you can sort of, like, mix it up and get into scraps with people. And the people who are, like, kind of more even-tempered and nicer are just like, eh, I'll stick to Instagram. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, sort of. So like I considered there there are points in the book where it seems like Bale is calling for moderates to basically like step up and voice their opinions on social media. Like, I mean, that's one of the sort of solutions that he proposes. Um, and I sort of considered that as I thought about. Um, so he also advises that we sort of consider what um, how we might appear on social media. And when I imagine how I appear on social media, I'm pretty sure that I appear as almost completely apolitical. Um, so I, I basically don't use Twitter. I basically don't use Facebook. Um, I use Instagram, but not at all for political content. Um, it's mostly pictures of like dilapidated buildings and clouds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Alexa, is your, is your Instagram account open? Can anybody follow it? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's, I can't remember. I opened it for a minute, um, because I was playing on, on these open mics and the, for the people to follow it, it was like a pain if they had to like request it. Um, and I can't remember if I closed it or not. I was going to say for our listeners, um, she's underrating how great these photos are. Sometimes it's hard to believe they're taken with a cell phone camera. Like you have like a real, amazing eye and you're like one of my favorite instagrammers actually oh, that's nice. <laughs> um but yeah i'm not posting a lot of political content um so yeah i don't know i mean i one of my reactions which which is maybe going to be inconsistent with the the way that i appear on social media is like i feel like there's uh, an underlying assumption in, in the book that I don't, I don't think that he, that, that Bale really fully addresses or acknowledges, um, which is that the ultimate goal should be moderation or that we should like come together in the middle somehow. So, so he suggests like these, uh, more ideal social media platforms that would perhaps reward, um, posts that have bipartisan appeal or something like that. Um, and I, I just wanted to like push back against that assumption a little bit because, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's like something that we can take for granted that, that, uh, the, the goal we should be striving for is to arrive at a consensus that's in the middle. Yeah. That, that struck me as well is that's, that's sort of an unstated 
assumption of the book is that we're going to do better by splitting the difference. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I agree that that's not always the case. And the tough thing to know is a priori, you know, which are the issues for which you're better off splitting the difference? Which are the issues for which one side really is more right and, you know, ought to prevail? Like, I I don't know if we know that ahead of time. Um, But I, I was thinking about like, maybe... Maybe he's just stating it a little imprecisely, right? So what if you say, like, look, you can talk about, like, the content of somebody's beliefs, but then you can also talk about, like, the style in which they're advocating for them, Mm -hmm. right? So you can advocate for the same belief in a way that says, I'm 100% right, you guys are misguided or stupid or evil, and I'm going to spend my time yelling at you. And then there's hypothetically you could advocate for that same position in a way that's kinder and more generous and extends more i guess um humanity to the other side and displays more intellectual humility maybe that's what we should be striving for yeah yeah it's interesting because he he uses the phrase like bipartisan appeal and i agree that it's it's not totally clear what that could mean and my antagonistic way of reading that was like oh you have something for everybody you you state like a position that's exactly in the middle and you hope that you're not pissing anybody off and that sounds really unappealing to me um and also that you could often be sort of yeah if if we imagine that there's a truth of the matter which i believe that there is then you know sometimes you would be wrong um but then yeah there's i guess a different way to think of bipartisan appeal which is like you convey your argument in a way that is not like um like insulting or disrespectful to people who might take a different position and you um yeah you give the benefit of the doubt in some way to somebody who might be starting from like a different perspective than you which does sound like more something I would be interested in rewarding on social media. So okay, I'm totally with you on the, yeah, the politeness and, and, and making sure, you know, we're speak with some decorum if we can. I mean, not always, but you know, uh, that, that, that's the ideal. And I also really like what you said, Alexa, about um, this assumption of is compromise is being in the middle um, always wise, right? Because, you know, that assumes that, you know, truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, Whereas, of course, you know, we uh, a while ago now we had John Jost on 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 the podcast, and he argued like, no, we don't want to compromise because the left is right, uh, I mean, the, left is, the left is correct, <laughs> um, and uh, so why should we give an inch there? Because you know we're dealing with people who are who, you know are not good faith actors or are just wrong about these various policy positions. So I totally you know get that, but. There's a separate thing I think that we have to, we have to deal with. So th- to me, your argument is a moral one. It's like, listen, you know, what if this w- one side is, is, is more correct? Let's have some sort of moral issue. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, let's say, you know, um, diversity and race, for example. We, we, mm-hmm. we, we'd probably consider the left, you know, more or less on the right side there, on the correct side there, sorry. Um, but, uh, but what about politically, though, right? Because, you know, in, in the U.S., the, the, the country is divided. Right. And if we don't have any kind of bipartisan agreement, like this kind of civil war, this metaphorical civil war that's happening will never get resolved. Right. So isn't, you know, going towards the middle, isn't that like pragmatic? Isn't that what's going to like help the country move forward, even if that means, you know, not having some positions that are the correct ones? I mean, I think if you're talking about like uh, 
polarization at the elite level, it's so much more a function of the structure of the system than it is um, about individuals' opinions. So, I mean, it's just a case that people in the House are elected more so than in the past um, from districts that are, by and large, quite partisan, right? So in that case, you don't need to make an effort to appeal to people on the other side. Um, And even in the Senate, you know, whereas you used to have more Republican senators from blue states and, and Democrats from red states, now politics has been nationalized to an extent that there's um you know there's there's very few of those folks left right there's like you know five or less um and i don't know that you're going to meaningfully affect that by like in a policy sense getting the public to split the difference that feels more driven by these kind of structural factors to me so I, I was actually going a slightly different direction uh, with my question. So when, when, I, when I meant when I meant pragmatic, I mean sure the actual pragmatics of winning elections, sure that that's important. But I was thinking about something slightly different, um, and that is the pragmatics of you know being in a country that's pretty much evenly split, where you go to Thanksgiving and it's a good chance that your parents have different politics than you, or your aunt has got different politics than you. Um, and if if there is no kind of compromise, then those those dinners end up being shorter. So I, I, one interesting tidbit I got from the book is that apparently Thanksgiving dinners were significantly shorter in the past you know couple of years or so as people don't want to talk politics uh, with their relatives. Um, and that seems like a real loss. It seems like a loss. Uh, you know, we dehumanize our friends and family to such an extent that we can't even sit down and have a conversation with them. Um, so that's what I'm talking about. And if, you know, again, if we, if we say, yes, the left is correct, um, and that means that 50% of the country is incorrect or they're, you know, or, or worse, they're malintentioned and or bad people. Um, well, how can we live together? So, Again, moving towards the middle will just help us actually be together. Uh, but again, I, I'm also recognizing that, of course, you know, who is the we there? So some people will suffer under, you know, if we go towards the middle. Because there is, I, I, I agree with you. I think there is a, a, a I'm, 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 on the, I'm on the left. So I do agree that, um, you know, liberal values are, are better ones. Um, but do you see what I'm saying? There was there was something that that I had a hard time getting the like sort of overall message from the book on this specific issue, which is the extent to which the U.S. is actually polarized. And maybe maybe that's even a tricky question to sort of like define what actual polarization is. But there are parts near the end where, um, where Bale sort of points out the phenomenon of false polarization. And I do think sometimes he seems to be making the argument that social media is the the thing that we can be most confident of is that social media is contributing to false polarization, right? So this perception that things are really polarized, um, but that perhaps um, the the extent of actual polarization much be might be much less. Um, I don't know if either of you know like the most the most recent um, like Pew poll or whatever um, on the degree of actual polarization, um, but. But yeah, I sort of like, I, I was a little skeptical of like, I mean, the, the sort of like Thanksgiving dinner, you know, that's hard to interpret or whatever. But um, 
But yeah, once you get off social media and, and perhaps pers- like false polarization is, um, is like a, a risky thing to perceive anyways from the sort of like civil war standpoint. But yeah, so my sense is that uh, polarization has in fact been increasing. There's a recent science paper showing that it's not so much that uh, attitudes towards your, your, your preferred party are increasing or getting more extreme. It's that dislike for the outgroup, the other party, um, has been increasing. Although, again, I think that there's, that can also live with false polarization, that we think we're actually far more different um, uh, than we actually are on, you know, in certain uh, attitude topics, like, you know, uh, support for abortion or gun rights or what have you. Um, but in terms of antipathy or feelings towards the other group, that does seem to be, that's not, that's not false. Uh, we do seem to be moving apart that way, but it's more like, again, uh, you know, kind of agreement with certain attitudes. Right. So I think that the overall finding, which I a hundred percent believe is that this affect of polarization, which is like, how do you feel about the political in-group versus the out-group that is going up? Right. And it, there's a question of how upset would you be if your son or daughter married somebody of the other political party? And the percentage of people saying that they'd be upset by that um, goes up, you know, steadily over the years and is now at like 50% or more. But an interesting finding that he talks about is um, people are pretty okay with somebody who's just like apolitical. Right. So it's, it's really that you think of, these the people on the other side is these like angry political partisans and of course you don't like them and i wonder how much that has to do with actual content so to this point of like okay well do we need to meet in the middle in terms of policy or is it more a question of how we're engaging with people who disagree with us i think the affect of polarization data suggests that it may be more about our perceptions of um are those people on the other side uh, treating us well, um, right? Are they taking our point of view seriously? Do they like us as people or do they, you know, look down at us or condemn us in various ways? And it's, right. And it's, so that is like, and, and just to like argue a little bit with what Mickey said, um, I don't think that what I'm talking about is just politeness, Right. I, I think it's about kind of an intellectual attitude where you listen to other people, you take their points of view seriously, you're willing to change their your mind, you're not convinced that you have all the answers. That's not just being polite. It's kind of a different epistemic attitude um, that's that's less confident, less certain, and is more kind of open to other people's points of view. Uh, Alexa, I, I saw you were trying to get in a word edgewise. Oh, I was... So when you were talking about like this, um, yeah, affective polarization and, and ways to sort of focus on, on that and not necessarily meeting in the middle in terms of policies, there was like one, one anecdote from the book that, that sort of, um, like stood out to me. Um, and it was somebody who was, uh, a Republican and she talked about how, the way that so once she was being like once she was seeing these um messages from the left um her reactions to those messages and she said something like you know they're attacking trump um and not even not even recognizing that trump is a democratically elected president and so they're attacking all of these other people when they attack trump and it just like drove home for me uh the like 
the social side of um, this. I mean, this sounds ridiculous. Yeah, the social side of polarization on social media. Um, and I think sometimes when we talk about political polarization, we consider things like, you know, cognitively, what are people, how are people weighing information from one side or the other? Or, um, yeah, like, what is the motivated reasoning that's going on? Um but it was just so easy for me to, like, it was easy for me to understand this person's perspective. And she also goes on to say, like, oh, when I post things and I see that people, like, are behind me, it makes me feel good. Um, and I think all of us can resonate with that. And so, yeah, it just became very, uh, it drove home this point that uh, I think, like, a lot of the views that people are expressing are, a, in response to feeling insulted by the other side, not necessarily so much about like people's particular stance or, um, or values. And then the reward that comes from feeling like you have a community that supports the views that you express. Um, so it seems to be, yes, so much of this seems to be about, you know, feeling liked and not wanting to, to, um, and, and feeling insulted when people express dislike of, of you indirectly. Um, that was something that I thought was really interesting about the book. Yeah. The, uh, the, the motivations behind, you know, getting online. I thought he had some really interesting takes. Um, but I, I, I wonder if, uh, we should refill our beers, maybe take a little break and then continue with, uh, you know, why people even get online. That sounds great. back this is the part of the show where i tell you how to contact us we're on twitter at four beers pod uh we i guess i normally would say mickey and i check the mentions in the dms um alexa doesn't have a twitter account so uh i'll be checking the mentions in the dms no mickey's still still on the account as well and i don't know maybe at some point alexa will want to get on twitter in which case those will go to her as well are I have a Twitter oh, account. It's oh, you do? Okay, well, I'll add you on there. And if you feel like logging on to the show account and, I don't know, responding to some DMs, you can you can do that. Um, if you'd rather email us, uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Right now, that goes to me and Mickey. I'll change it. So it goes to Alexa as well. Um, finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can find our latest episode and our entire back catalog there. And you can always also drop us a line there always as well if you like. Um, 
uh, please, if you're enjoying the show, do rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. It helps other people discover us. Mickey, have I left anything out? I think you covered it all. Yeah, keep keep the reviews coming. I think we've gotten a few in the past little bit. Um, some positive. Uh, so uh, <laughs> wait, what did I miss? Something? Did we get? We got one. Review? We got one that was meh. Uh, and it was uh, one star. Uh, I don't mind a one star if it's funny, uh, but this was just like uh, I, I don't think I appreciated our our take, but didn't didn't expand too much. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. I feel like meh should be like you know three stars at least, right? <laughs> I think so. But it's yeah. all good, man. Hey, if, if you think we're one star, give us a one star, but just just don't press the submit button. Right. So we obviously appreciate all the reviews and. Uh, really enjoy reading those. Let's not forget to talk about beer. Alexa, what are you drinking? Um, this is a beer by Wild Range Brewing Company, um, and it's an IPA. It's got some wolves on it. And Mickey, what have you got? So I'm still with this, um, the carbon neutral uh, brewery called Half Hours on Earth. And I did confirm it's half hours, plural, on Earth. And the this beer is called The Future is Electric. And it's a Lulo Apricot Matcha Sour IPA. Again, it's just like a bunch of random words and IPA at the, at the end. This is like, you know, the, the bullshit stuff. Um, uh, people's ability to detect bullshit and they put together the like random words and they're like, you know, is this meaningful? That's what you're being. Absolutely. Is. It totally, it totally is that. And in fact, I'm, I'm like uh, very receptive to, to, to bullshit when it's, you know, matched to beer. Uh, so actually I was attracted to, to the, the matcha in there. I'm like matcha in a beer. Like I want to see if I taste that. So what this reminds me of is when you're like, you have a bunch of crap in the back of your fridge and you're like, I have to cook this before it spoils. Is there some way I could just throw this all in the same pot and hope it turns out? It's um, the stir fry of beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All right. And, uh, I have a beer from, uh, Du Du Ciel, uh, which again is just, a I have a local Quebec brewery. It's a laser lager, and it has a really cool can design, which is mainly why it shows it. It's got this like super 80s vibe. It's got like a like vintage VW on there. This is, I'm stepping up here to a 4.3% beer. So I'm getting serious. This is crazy. Uh, can you just say that the, the name, can you repeat the name of, of that brewer again? I just love hearing you speak French. Oh my god. French is the most impossible fucking language. Du du ciel. Very good. How is it actually pronounced? <laughs> Alexa, you give it a try. You find out like twelve years of French. Oh, I don't want to do I don't I I didn't sign up for this. I, I had that moment as I heard Yoel pronounce the brewery. I was like, I'm glad I'm not drinking that beer because I don't want to pronounce that brewery. <laughs> Listen, you have you you are a product of Canadian education. You can speak French a little bit. Uh, it's pronounced Dieu du ciel. Okay, I feel like, except for the first word, I was, uh, you know, in the ballpark. Dieu. All right. Dieu. Yeah, you only mispronounce God. <laughs> He's going to smite me. All right. I feel like Alexa, by the way, is so typical of Anglophone Canadian products of the Canadian educational system, where they allegedly speak French, but then they completely refuse to. They're like, no, I took it for 12 years, but I will, I, I will refuse to speak a word of it. I'm like, uh, I have like fears of speaking French. Um, I, I, I had this friend who, um, was Dutch and we went to, we did like a semester 
in, in Durham, North Carolina together. And I was like so excited to speak Dutch with her. And I was like really open-minded about this. But like I took French for a, for a long time in school and I've had good friends who speak French. So like I've had so many opportunities to like work on my French and develop French. It's obviously like the language that it would be easiest for me to learn aside from English. And I'm like, I find the idea of it so aversive because I just feel so embarrassed every time I try to speak French. Um, I've been like, I've been shamed. Definitely learning to speak a language relies upon like a lack of shame. You just have to be willing to look like an idiot. Mm -hmm. I I was just going to try this one more time. De de ciel. (laughs) <laughs> you just said to de sel. Uh, uh, dear. God, dear. I, ah, man, this language is fucking impossible. No wonder Alexa refuses. You try, and then the French speakers give you shit. You know, like, why are you ever gonna? Anyway, it's a laser logger. I'm going to crack it open. Excellent. Cheers. All right. So we'll pick up uh, from uh, where we left off, which is um, Alexa, I think you ended on uh, I think a really interesting point which was you know r- r- you know reminding us you know Chris Bell reminding us hey there you know there's, there's there's a person on the other side and um and in fact you know what drives people is is essentially just really simple like you know wanting to be liked and not wanting to be disliked um but he he made this uh this interesting point which I thought and I I wonder if you if if you, if you two agree he suggested that you know, the extremists. So, so first of all, we should, we should say that, you know, according to his analysis, only 5%, I think 5% on each side or 5% total, I forget now, are actually extremists. Uh, and the rest are kind of in the middle who don't really post. The, the moderates are invisible. And what we end up seeing, actually a big thesis of the book is that the people we end up seeing, what gets filtered out is, is the kind of the moderate people and we just see the extremes. Um, but he argues that the, that, that these extremists the ones who we see, who we think are representative of of all of you know Twitter or or, or all of Democrats or Republicans, etc., um, they're driven by you know just two things, uh, and one is you know status. They want status um, that they're lacking in their real life, and they want status, and they get that from likes and retweets. And the, the, the crazier they are, the more they get that from partisans on their side. Um, and, uh, they, they want, they want a collective identity. So identity as a Republican or identity as, as, as a Democrat. And that's what's driving them. So he paints this kind of picture of most of the, 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 the people who tweet the most and who are, who are online the most as lonely, you know, uh, people who are probably have very few friends in the real world. And it, I don't know, to me, it's something seems like a bit of a caricature to, to, to characterize, you know, the, the, the extremes that way. But it seemed like that's what he was going for. Um, am I misconstruing his argument there? No, I think that that's fair. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know if he's the the picture of like the lonely person who's like seeking out status on social media um, feels feels like a little um, predictable to me or like maybe that's like uh, a construction to some degree. Um, But definitely like his, his account of one of the main motivations being um, sort of to be liked and to be part of a community um, that, that, that to me sounds very plausible and rings true. And actually it reminded me of um, the, the movie about flat earthers that's <laughs> that's also on Netflix um and 
I don't know if this is intentionally one of the, the, um, messages conveyed in that movie. Um, but the sense that I got from the people that they interviewed that, um, that are really into this flat earther movement is that they feel like they're part of a community and there's something, um, exciting about being part of a community that believes something that, um, that only a small proportion of the population believes because you feel like you're in on something and you have, you have this sort of cohesive group of people who are also in on it with you. Um, so yeah, I saw like a parallel there and, um, I actually feel when I was watching the flat earther documentary, I, I felt some sort of like some degree of identification with, um, with these conspiracy theorists because, uh, I think there's something also appealing about, at least initially about the open science movement. Um, not all conspiracy theories are wrong. Right. And so, you know, initially I think that it was a small group of people who it felt like, you know, we're seeing these real systemic problems. Um, and yeah, there's something like very, uh, rewarding and meaningful about feeling like, um, you're seeing something that other people aren't and that there's, there's a group of people who also see it. Um, so I could see that, that being, there being a parallel in the political realm and also that social media would like be fostering this or like feeding this, this motivation. Yeah. That's such a interesting parallel. Um, I love this flat earther movie too. I, I think it's called behind the curve. Um, and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes it some chance. I, I have that title wrong. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's striking how much believing this weird stuff to these people seems to be about the social identity aspect of it, right? And hanging out with your friends online, going to conferences with them, meeting up with them, like it becomes your community. And in a way, the more bizarre and esoteric the belief, the better, because it's a better delineator of in-group versus versus out-group. And like, Obviously, you could think of like darker examples of this more recently, like QAnon, I think shares some of these same characteristics. But then also, like Alexa said, you know, sometimes that can be used for good, right? If a group comes together and decides we believe something out of the mainstream, um, we really think that we're right. They spend a lot of time talking to each other. They can be really effective advocates for change. And I think that the way that open science and psychology started is exactly that. Like a small group of people who had what were at the time fringe beliefs, who sort of coalesced around that and kind of built an identity around that, right? So that's really, really interesting. Uh, what, what, what I find interesting about it is that, Alexa, you, you're suggesting that, you know, the group gets energy from being fringe in a way, from being small, from being like contrarian, different from what other people are saying. Um, and the open science example is a great one there. And I remember like the, 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 the early days of being online and, and, and seeing people talk about this. There was, it was so exciting and, and, and fun. And, um, and, and I thought, you know, we thought we we're doing something important. But now what happens when, you know, uh, we can we can stick with the open science movement, or we can move to another example. Um, when the group becomes much much bigger, and it's no longer a fringe belief, it's if not, I don't think open science is 
totally mainstream yet, but but it's certainly a lot bigger than it was, you know, back in 2011 or 2012, whenever it was. Um, so what happens when the group now becomes, if not the dominant view, a much, much bigger group? Do you lose that sense of identity? Is that, is that lost? Well, I wonder if... Um if you just sort of like subdivide further and further, right? Um, so initially, I think these groups probably, this is just pure speculation, um, probably feel pretty cohesive. Um, and then as they grow, I think you start, of start, start to see sort of like subsections of the groups um, and potentially um, even sort of like really strong disagreements within a group, um, which might not be the case at the very beginning. Um, but, but certainly is the case within the open science movement now. I mean, um, people have really different opinions about like, uh, Bayesian versus, versus frequentist stats or pre even pre-registration, um, like certain aspects of openness. Um, so, so yeah, maybe people sort of I, I think that the the appeal of of being part of a small group is um, the sort of appeal of feeling like special or like you're in on something and and yeah I don't know I mean it's strange because it also seems like we're trying to we're often trying to like convert people to our sides or or um, convince people to share our views um, but at the same time there seems to be sometimes like this this push away from that into like smaller groups. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting because it suggests that like there are two things going on, right? So one is like the, like ostensibly the main aim, right? To change psychology. Let's, let's stick with open science for the moment. Um, to change psychology for the better, to improve it. Um, but the second goal gets actually diluted the, the more the first goal becomes successful. Right. If if you if you're deriving your identity from being exclusive and unusual, um, the more you're successful in preaching your message, the less special you are. And then maybe it breeds infighting, or it breeds like a, a, a desire to um, to differentiate yourself on some other dimension. Um, and yeah, for sure, you're seeing that now in open science, which is kind of fractured in in in, in a number of different ways. Um, yeah, that yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to think about it, that there's just inherently this tension within activist groups between the things that reinforce group exclusiveness and boundaries versus the things that are broadly appealing. And those like kind of have to go in opposite directions, right? So like if everybody's doing pre-registration, then being pro-pre-registration doesn't make you special anymore. Right. So like at the same time that the group achieves its ends, it sort of undermines maybe some of the like emotional connection that like bound it together. Yeah, it's it, it like falls apart under its own uh, because of its own success. Uh, the, the, the esteem it gives you as being part of this you know, unique and special group. Right. Hey, so maybe this is a we can cut this if it ends up being just like too much of a tangent. But here's something where Mickey would just agree with me. And maybe, Alexa, you can, like, argue against me. So it seems to me, like, when you talk about um, social justice folks, there are some things about the way that they use language that seem to be purely identity markers. That is, they don't conceptually add anything. Instead, they're just sort of a code that signal, I'm in this group. So 
what I don't mean is something like intersectionality, where I think that does something useful conceptually, right? Right. But if you think about the term Latinx, which no, I'm exaggerating a little bit, like single digit percentages of actual Latinos identify with that term, but you see social justice people using it. If you think about spelling women with an X instead of the E, something that you're starting to see now, like pure to me, I think, identity marker. Um, the, I, the thing that jumps out at me sometimes is the use of uh, black bodies or brown bodies, like to, to just mean people. Um, again, I, maybe that does something like that's conceptually something else, but to me, it just, it's just synonymous with like black people or brown people. Why say bodies? I don't know, because it signals that I'm a member of this group. Am I totally off base here? Or do you think that's reasonable? I, I mean, I guess like, I, I don't think that, um, you're off base in that these things, serve a signaling function um and that people hear those um those kinds of terms those kinds of words and sort of like either recognize like okay you and i are like on the same page or okay you and i are not on the same page which i think is is related to this what we were discussing earlier when it comes to um people perceiving things as like agreements or attacks basically um so these i think this language contributes a lot to that kind of um perception and you get to a point where even just like the use of a phrase feels like either a bonding serves like either a bonding function or an attack um i guess i would make i would give a bit more of a charitable account of how people come to use those terms so i don't think people end up using maybe there are some exceptions but i think i don't think people come to use those kinds of terms because um, they're, uh, consciously intending to, um, signal a certain kind of like status or identity. I think that, um, there are certain circles where people discuss these terms and why they're meaningful and important and, uh, discuss, uh, problems with terms that are, are generally used. And so sincerely come to believe that these terms are, are, are better or less problematic um, so, so maybe, yeah, like maybe I would differ from you in terms of my account for how people come to use them. Um, but I ultimately think that they, they do serve like a sort of like identity reifying function. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And see, this is why it's good to have somebody who doesn't just agree with me about everything. Didn't she just agree with you? I no no she I I think she points out a really like useful way in which I was being imprecise right so you could interpret what I said as people do this on purpose like you know haha I'm gonna like exclude the squares by saying Latinx and, <laughs> and, and I don't think anybody really does that right that's not what I mean I mean like the reason that these terms become popular is in part because they serve this function, but no individual is thinking of it in those terms, right? So things can become popular in a group that serves somehow the group's goals without any individual member ever thinking of them in those terms, right? In fact, in order for it to work, you have to sincerely believe that it's actually the better way to refer to this group or whatever, right? If if you're like thinking that I'm going to do this strategically, then, you know, it undermines the whole point of it. Yeah. I have these. Um, so there are, are people in my department who 
um, have started saying they'll, they'll talk about, um, evaluating like job candidates or even like, you know, um, grad students or something like that. And they'll talk about like strengths and growth edges. And and I had the initial reaction when I heard the term growth edge of like, come on, just call it a weakness. But I know that the people who are using that term, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I think it's very sincere. Like they're like, oh, this will, this will serve a productive function if instead of like thinking of these things as like, I don't know, ingrained shortcomings or something that, that there are like things that we can work on and they're like challenges or something. I mean, you can, you can see the connection to like the mindset research. This is like, you know, that is hilarious. I've never heard that. Um, and it's kind of interesting to, you know, how many of these terms are out there that never leave their local environments. And some do, they percolate a little bit and they're popular for a little bit and then they go down. Like I, wasn't women with a Y at one point kind of popular in the seventies, but never really, never really took hold as, as a term. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, according to something that I read, which may or may not be accurate, women with a Y is now used by anti-transgender feminists and therefore it has bad connotations. So like so-called gender critical or trans exclusionary feminists. And so, uh, <laughs> yes, although they would consider that to be a slur. So you want to be careful. Um, and, and so now if you'd want to do women without the men, you have to do something else. And X is more inclusive in, for a reason that I don't quite understand. And so you do the X, but I mean, to me, it just looks unpronounceable. Like, how do you even, I don't think I've that? seen that yet. I don't think I've seen this, that spelling of women. I'm that's one of your growth edges, <laughs> man. <laughs> that's hilarious growth edge. Uh what if you can't grow? What if it's just like, you know, I'm short, man. It's like it's a weakness. Uh I I'm not actually going to grow. <laughs> you know, you could you could wear taller shoes at least. There's always something you could do. Um All right, so maybe we can uh, we can talk about uh some of his suggestions for uh, you know, improving social media. Uh, or at least improving our experience of social media and perhaps even creating a new social media. So, uh, you know, one, there's one chapter in the book where he asks, you know, should we delete our social media accounts? Which a lot of, you know, early tech gurus have suggested. Um, uh, is it Jared Lanier, I think, suggested this and, and a number of other people as well? Uh, we're just better off without it. And I think Chris Bale makes a really interesting point of saying, like, that's just, just not realistic. Sure, if you're, like, close to 50 like me or older, like, whatever. You know, I, I deleted Facebook in the summer. I don't miss it at all. And I don't, I'm never, probably never going to go back on. Um, but if you're younger, if you're, like, 20 to 30, you know, you know, or 15 plus, you've just grown up with this. It's not, it's, well, we're not going back. So, you know, he suggests deleting doesn't make any sense. But uh, one, you know, he says there are things we can do other than deleting. Um, and one thing that I thought about a lot uh, as he wrote about it, because it really resonated with me, is, you know, what, you know, kind of answering the question, what happens, you know, if you find yourself in a, in a Twitter fight or a social media fight where you're being criticized or you see someone who's acting in a way that you find repulsive? Um, you know, I think one, one, you know, impulse you might have is to be like, oh shit, I should, you know, I'm doing something wrong or people, uh, you know, people are criticizing me. I got to shut up or, um, oh wow, this is a really hostile place. And he goes, you know, first thing you got to do is like, ask yourself, who was the person doing the criticizing? What are they like? And the chances are, if they're really vocal and loud, 
um, and extreme, they're probably like in that fringe 5% of extremists. So it's unlikely, maybe you shouldn't be bothered too much by receiving criticism from someone who's, you know, just just a hardcore partisan. Um, And then uh, the other thing he suggested was find out where you stand. Like, are you the extremist? You know, if you're receiving negative feedback, maybe you're the one who's like at the, at the edge of the, you know, at the very, very end, you know, an extreme Republican or, ext- or extreme Democrat. And if that's the case, then maybe it makes sense that you're receiving some pushback. Um, so I kind of like thinking about that, thinking about where, you know, what what do my Twitter, you know, uh, my, what do my tweets say about me and what do the other people's tweets say about them? And maybe it's helpful. I mean, I think if you're, if you're being kind of criticized a lot, maybe not... So, so much, but like if you can remove yourself a little bit and be, oh yeah, you know, these are maybe like crazy people or people are really, really extreme. Um, I'm not sure. Did you, did you find that helpful at all in something as a, as a way of dealing with it, with this sort of stuff? Well, I mean, I obviously had to go check my ideology. So if you go to polarizationlab.com slash echo dash checker, you can do that. You uh, give a permission to access your Twitter account and then it gives you a score of your echo chamber strength. And I will disclose that there's a scale that goes from zero to 10, zero being the most liberal, 10 being the most conservative. And I'm at just about a two. So I'm way over on the liberal side. And if you look at which public figures, uh, elected officials specifically, most uh, similar to, I get Ayanna Presley and uh, what is her first name? Underwood. Um, Lauren Underwood. So two quite liberal members of Congress. Uh, so I was dismayed to learn that I am, you know, very deep in an ideological echo chamber according to their uh, model. So unfortunately, I couldn't use their model. Um, but today I Googled the term utopia and looked for images and one of the suggested um categories you know how how google will give you categories one of the suggested categories was queer utopia um so i think that puts me at like i don't know maybe maybe at a two with you you yeah i would like to know um how i could move to queer utopia is it only for (laughs) queer people (laughs) do they take others (laughs) if they submit a sufficiently detailed application what's a wait list I think that Queer Utopia is very open to all members. That's what I would have expected. Thank you. So I did the same and was dismayed to learn that I am uh, a uh, 4.719. Um, and, uh, oh shit, my phone just went off. Um, the, the per- they kind of match you with a, with a, a, a politician and... There's an Alabama co- uh, connection here. I was closest to uh, the former Senator Doug Jones, um, which is interesting. But now I should say a, a massive caveat is like this is this is based on machine learning. They look at your what they do is they look at your Twitter feed, uh, your Twitter, your your tweets, and then they kind of match it uh, algorithmically with you know a well-known uh, politicians. Now, as you know, as we all know, and I, I'm sure our listeners now know from from hearing us blather on about stats a lot, um, you know, 
the model is only as good as, as what, it, what you give it. Now, I've put, I, I really, really pulled back a ton uh, from Twitter, and I hardly ever tweet anymore. And I also have this little program that deletes anything that's too o- older tweets. So I only have about 10 tweets there. So I suspect what happens is it puts you right in the middle, like guess at five, although if it's zero, I'm not sure what the middle is exactly. Um, and uh, probably just moves you uh, up or down based on the data it receives. So I wouldn't trust my... Um, my results too much because it's only based on a small number of tweets. Okay, we have two questions. So first of all, why were you dismayed? Too high or too low? Uh, well, I, too too high. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be a two like Yoel. Um, but I would, you know, I mean, my values are I'm I'm certainly left wing. Um, so I'm not a I'm not a right in the middle. I'm, I would call myself center left. Um, so, you know, a three or so would, would probably be where I am. Again, assuming five is in the middle, but with a zero, is it 5.5? 5. 5? Um, and this one I should know the answer to, but is it, is it just analyzing the content of your tweets or does it look at your like Twitter network? No, it just looks at your tweets. I'm not sure if it's just original tweets, uh, uh or tweets and replies or maybe retweets. I'm not sure. Cause you actually can get a separate, uh, uh, ranking for your your actual your news feed your timeline um and when i do that i'm like my timeline is probably like yoel is like uh 2.2 and i'm closest to uh ayana presley the same person as, as you anyway it's an interesting tool uh, you know you, you yeah you can see how uh there's lots of cool things you can get out of this and i i recommend all our listeners uh check it out see how you rank and how your 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 timeline ranks uh you know where, where you place yourself a little bit um Yep, we'll have links to those in the show notes. Yeah, but but you know, beyond our own scores, do you find that comforting? Do you, for example, um, you know, I'm sure you well, you've uh, Alexa as well, to the extent that you're on Twitter, um, you, you'll see some posts like, "Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening," or "Oh my God, I can't believe this this is you know going on," um, and then you're like, "Oh, this is probably one of the five percent of people who are kind of tweet a lot and are really really extreme in their point in, in their perspective and." You, what you're not seeing are the, the people in the middle because they're they're talking about sports or they're you know taking photographs of clouds. Um. Yeah, I do, I, I do. I mean, I find that reassuring. I, I, at the same time, it's these public statements that sort of set the norm for for a group of people, um, and I think it's likely that people in the group will look at those public statements and. Uh, assume that the group mean is close to where the statements are at, even when that's not true. And I think that misperception can be problematic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, but I, and I also think it works not it works that way not just for the moderates, but also also the extremists. So I saw something today where there was a conversation going on, um, which I considered extreme, and it's like, whoa, this is like you know not this is not how what I believe at all. And I saw their conversation and they were like, can you believe that other poli- other people are saying this other thing? And you're like, yeah, you are. You think that people you're talking to are the norm, that, you know, that, that your opinion is exactly the correct opinion and the, the opinion everyone shares. So it's interesting to see that, like, everyone feels this way. Um, the moderates feel like, you know, they're... Um, well, I guess the moderates are feeling that their 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 opinions aren't being expressed, and then the, the the extremists are saying, "How come more people aren't saying what we're saying?" Let's talk about the potential solution to this, which is uh, an app where you can anonymously talk about politics with a randomly selected other person. What do you guys think of this idea? Yeah, I like so. 
you know, I'm, as I'm reading through the book, I'm thinking like, okay, he's going to, there's going to be some solution at the end. What is this going to solution going to look like? I appreciated at the beginning that like he proposed this, you know, he tested this, um, you're sort of commonly speculated about, um, solution to echo chambers and sort of challenged that. Um, and so, but then, yeah, at the end, he, he proposes the solution, which it, it looks like he's done a bit of a test run with. So, so he's developed this, um, app called discuss it, um, where, so there's a couple of principles. So it's supposed to be conversations between individuals, um, with this, with this trial run, he paired, um, unbeknownst to the participants, he paired, uh, people on the right with people on the left. Um, but they're also having conversations, um, anonymously. And so I guess the rationale here is that, um, this removes the, um, the, the status motivation, right? So it allows people to, um, have these conversations free of, um, the performativity of a regular social media platform. Um, and I thought it was, uh, and, and Bill sort of acknowledges this a little bit, but I thought it was sort of like a delightfully naive, um, suggestion. So, um, so he talks a little bit about other platforms that have, have used anonymity and how this is like, can become very problematic very quickly. And, um, but I think my, my bigger question about this as a solution is, um, so he notes that there's like the people who have, who used, um, who used discuss it, uh, tended to say that they enjoyed the conversations that they had, um, which seems promising, but I'm just, I, he seems to perceive this sort of like untapped desire for, um, non-polarized political conversations, um, that, I think just doesn't exist. Like, I think there are a few people who want that. And I think there are lots of people who want to avoid politics entirely. And then I think there is a chunk of people who want to win arguments about politics online in a way that is visible and other people will like their, their arguments for that reason. Um, so I don't see the, I don't see the motivation. Um, I don't see there being a lot of drive to use, um, an app like this, unfortunately. Yeah, so I kind of have the same feeling. I mean, first of all, that like if you scale this up, you know, it would e immediately be overrun by people like posting pictures of dicks or whatever. That's just like uh, inevitable. Uh, like a, just like ASCII dick pics. You, know, <laughs> you, you speak as over. if it's a bad thing, you will. <laughs> that's right. It's it's uh, it'll brighten somebody's day who doesn't like an ASCII dick. Um, but but yeah, I, I mean. My feeling too is that the market for people who want kind of sober, nuanced, and high-minded discussions about political issues, it's pretty small. I think most folks just try to tune it out for the most part, right? They're just like more interested in living their lives. Yeah. Um, and this goes back to an earlier point that you, that you, that you raised, uh, Alexa, about uh like is it a good idea for for all of us to be talking about politics um like maybe like maybe it is better just to talk about sports or 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 tv shows or netflix um and yeah i i think i totally agree that very few people actually want to have these kind of conversations they, they, they'd rather just talk with people who agree with them i think 
Yeah, although you could say, like, look, if you're interested in talking about politics now, you get funneled into this system that really rewards uh, extremity. And maybe it would be good for those people who are interested to have a way to do that that's more about uh, listening to people who don't agree with you. I was, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I also think, like, I mean, I sort of described um, three different groups. I do think that there are people who use social media as a platform um, to talk about political issues because um, because they're activists and they're really interested in um, pushing for certain kinds of political change. And yeah, I'm not sure if they would if they would use a platform like um, like discuss it. It seems like a a slow way to push for that. Um, but yeah, I think that that there are people who are talking about political issues online that are not um, are not simply motivated by uh, status and and who are are willing to engage with um, political issues because they just um, they find those things they're really important issues to them. And that was actually something that I thought um, when when Bale sort of suggests that or pushes moderates to express their political views online. Um, I think that raises some interesting questions about, you know, whether people have some responsibility to uh, voice their positions on um, issues that are important to them on social media platforms. Um, and yeah, whether, whether there's something sort of, whether we should be critical of people who are um, appearing as apolitical on platforms, which I mean, I would be included in that group, I think. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. I feel like we have a whole podcast on that, on the, this issue of, um, you know, uh, what you know, what is what is not talking say, what is not being political say. That means you are. I mean, what, one interpretation is that it means you agree with the status quo, which. I don't think that's fair. I think it just means you'd rather not talk about this or you haven't thought too much about it. Um, but yeah, that's that's a really, I think that's becoming more of an issue more and more, this notion of like, you know, what is your um, responsibility um, to say or not to say? Um, and yeah, th- th- yeah, that could be another episode for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yes, uh, we will put that on the list. Um for now, I feel like this is a good place to wrap up. I, I feel like we did this book justice. Um, again, uh, yeah, thanks to Chris and Princeton University Press for hooking us up with free copies. I guess we should, you know, uh, COI disclosure. Uh, we got them sent to us for free. Um, but uh, but yeah, we, we really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I would encourage you guys to check it out if you're at all interested um, in these topics. It's... I. I I think it's very readable. Like it's a university press book, but it is not written like a dense academic tome at all. Um, and I feel like I learned a lot, even though I already knew about some of these experiments. It was still really interesting and uh, informative to think. Yeah, about. agreed. It was it was uh, really interesting, and I'm surprised that it wasn't a popular press because it's really written. It's a really like kind of uh, a light style, easy to read. I really I really got into like the 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 profiles of of, of the extremists yeah Me it was too. so interesting to see like the individual stories um i wish there was more of that in psychology more um okay, talking about some phenomenon and then okay, let's let's now let's zero in and, and and like actually interview and describe what these people's lives are like um it'd be wonderful if that was a turn we took
Yeah, seriously. That's I'm I'm glad you said that because I had the same reaction. Yeah. Um, all right, with that, uh, I feel like I, I I'm like I, I'm slightly emotional here because this is like uh, the beginning of the end for me uh, and the beginning of the beginning for you, Alexa. Um, so I think it was I, I'm so happy to have been part of the uh, podcast. I'm not leaving quite yet, not you know, but uh, really kind of proud of the, the work we've done and eager to see what what you two produce. I think it'll be interesting. And despite what I said, you know, at the beginning, I'll definitely be listening every episode. So awesome. Well, yes, like you said, this isn't the end yet. Uh, we look forward to having you on for for many more episodes to come. And uh, welcome, Alexa. I'm looking forward to our new future together. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited.